Hello and welcome to Unwatchables, the podcast for the films that like to push our buttons, especially the buttons that make us puke. I am Mark Batavio. I'm Seth Troyer. And today we are joined by special guest Matt Belenke to discuss the proudly lurid modern exploitation films of S. Craig Zoller. Zoller's genre exercises are as loquacious and methodical as they are shockingly brutal and often accused of being as regressive as their inspirations. We will be discussing his grisly 2015 horror western Bone Tomahawk and his bone-crunching, face-scraping prison flick, 2017's Brawl in Cell Block 99. All right, Matt, did I say your last name right? Yeah, no, that was great. You were one of the few, the, pr- the proud. Yeah. All right, Matt Belenke. He's been a guest on uh, other podcasts like Hit Factory, Cinematic Underdogs. His work has been featured in The Gutter Review and Massive Cinema. And Matt, thank you for joining us. Uh, is there anything that I left out there that we should know about you? I think that hits the the big buttons. I guess I've associate produced a few indie movies, and one of them is going to come out this summer. Um, one was called Goodbye Petrushka. It's free on a bunch of streamers or Tubi. Um, great places like that and uh, the new one comes out this summer it'd probably be um also straight to vod type streaming release um and that one's called magnet magnetosphere all right well we're looking for those on tubi killer title oh yeah thank you so maybe are you thinking about maybe producing some of zoller's next film since it doesn't seem like anybody else is yeah i mean apparently he's uh, written and sold 25 scripts uh, over the past decade i would love to have my piece on any one of those, um, given how much kind of energy and passion he brings to his movies and his characters, I'm I'm all in on them. Yeah, because it's been, I think 2018 was when his last movie came out, Dragged Across Concrete. And uh, really, all three of his movies came out between 2015 and 2018, plus the script that he wrote for the 13th Puppet Master film, which uh, I don't know if that you have you seen that set? That seems like something you might have seen. He wrote Puppet Master, The Littlest Reich. The Littlest? Part 13 in the series. <laughs> wow. No, not at all. Not even close. Wow, that's okay. a great title. All these good titles in my life. Yeah, if I had remembered in time, I would have tried to watch that before this. What the fuck? Because, yeah, he is very prolific. He's written novels, comic books, and he plays in a metal band and, and like sings and writes the music and plays drums. I believe called Czar. So you see this guy, he has like, he, he's just this kind of goofy, like has a ponytail. I listened to a few interviews, you know, talking with him. He seems pretty amiable. And I don't know, do you have any experience, Matt, with any of his other stuff, like of all the the books and graphic novels and stuff? I don't have experience with those books. I, I'm aware of their absurd and kind of insane names that kind of uh, match the titles of his feature films as well. Uh, mean Business on North Ganson Street, for example, is a, a book that he's written. Um, yeah. And uh, I think actually Adam Piron on Twitter had a good tweet a couple of days ago talking about all the uh, would-be Zoller movies that are going to come out in the next 10 years. And, and the titles are just, uh, I think he, he made it up, but they're really funny and accurate. Um, but my... Uh, relationship to Zoller was in reverse. Uh, Dragged Across Concrete was my first taste um, of his menace. Um, And 
it was um, a to- in, you know a totally different film, especially given uh, we hadn't seen Mel Gibson in a role like this, this juicy and textured, and and Vince Vaughn um, also playing against type from characters that he's played in recent time. Um, he, he, I think Zoller is smart enough to kind of uh, use. Uh, Vince Vaughn's physicality, which we'll talk about with Brawl and Cell Block 99, but feels a lot like the psycho Vince Vaughn of, you know, early 90s, mid 90s fair. That's funny because we've covered that movie uh, in a previous episode. So the only time that we've talked about Vince Vaughn so far, we were not totally generous uh, to him. Yeah, you made the joke that uh, Cell Block 99 was a sequel to the 90s psycho. Yeah, if you just... If you just pick it up and imagine that when he gets to jail, that's that's where we left off with Norman Bates. Well, at yeah, because Psycho. Psycho would go to super jail. It all just makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that one anyways. Uh, we'll start with Bone Tomahawk because that was his debut film, uh, which came out in 2015 and was, for most people, their first taste of his sensibility, especially... Uh, we see him working with people like Kurt Russell and Richard Jenkins. Um, these just really great actors. Uh, and in the form of a Western, which we'll see this recurring, I think, throughout the conversation, is that he does these genre pieces that are, are very much like, this is his take on the Western, and then his take on the prison film, and then Right Across Concrete is about the crooked cops. So you can tell that he likes using these as his play box in a way that not a lot of people really are except Tarantino, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's hard not to kind of bring up the both of them, right? Because they are both working within this template of exploitation films. But they're definitely different for all of their similarities. I don't know if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, uh, T. West is the other director who comes to mind. Um, just less well-known, I think, I think everyone. And the dialogue's perhaps less catchy than uh than a Zoller or a Tarantino um but he is uniquely paying homage to the 70s films which not as many directors are doing we all kind of romanticize the 70s as this uh agreed upon best decade ever or one of the best decades ever um and Zoller is kind of going to the B the B hits or the B side of that 70s era right it's especially Bone Tomahawk which is um very much indebted to Sam Peckinpah and whether it's uh, the wild bunch uh, or the brutish, like the brutalness of uh, straw dogs um, and, you know, the dragged across concrete's kind of like the getaway, which Peckinpah directed also. So he's playing in these kind of uh, maybe less, I don't know if commercial, especially nowadays, they're definitely less commercial genres, but he's able to do so much with them, especially the things that he likes, which is extreme and brutal violence. Um, and also these kind of dragged out scenes dragged out on concrete sometimes. Um, but these, uh, elongated monologues between two characters, um, talking about, you know, the mundane aspects, which is definitely in line with, with, with a Tarantino, right? There's, uh, these dragged out moments of, um, seemingly irrelevant plot points or um the minutiae that goes on between scenes i think zoller is obsessed with that he's he's really into those moments uh that happen like the stakeouts right the waiting 
because Bone Tomahawk, the violence doesn't really kick in until the final third. So much of it is just walking. It's like a adventure movie, Lord of the Rings style for much of it. Um, but he still lands the final punch, and that's so impressive about him. Yeah, a lot of people will categorize this as a horror western uh, because of the nature of the villains in this. And I kind of forgot the extent to which that stuff is confined to the last 20 or 30 minutes of the movie and out of a very long 130 minute film. Right. If that. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we do the the opening scene is kind of gruesome and we do get this scene where a stable boy is killed in a very mysterious, like slasher film type of abrupt way. But besides those little hints, the most of the movie, like you were saying, Matt, is very uh, languid and loquacious. And it's very much about these character interactions, which are often very funny um, and heartfelt, too. There is like a there's an earnestness to these characters where it seems like he's taking them seriously and their emotions. And he really takes the time to get you invested in their relationships, whether it's these characters who set out to rescue the kidnapped wife or the scenes that we have early on between um, Patrick Wilson's character uh, and his wife, who is the one who ends up getting kidnapped, that he really has a way of putting into just one scene all of the emotional investment that will carry you through the rest of the film. Yeah, no, no, totally. Um, and he's he's playing with some familiarity with that these actors can succeed in this genre also, right? Kurt Russell is tombstone acclaimed, and I felt much of that film in this one, actually, especially with the uh, the looks, the mustaches, the hats, the attire. It felt like very almost hypersexualized mm-hmm. in a way, um, especially Matthew Fox's character. And there was a little bit of Val Kilmer from Tombstone and, and Matthew Fox. Yeah, it's totally like a pop Western feel. Like it's more like a scent. It's still like going for realism, like a, a stark grittiness. But there is, I don't know, I... Even without Kurt Russell, I think like Tombstone did come to mind with this in a certain way. It's that buddy buddy sort of thing going on. Yeah, and I think I think what separates this a little bit from Tarantino, which again, you know, he he also has articulate characters, these bursts of violence. Um, I would say dialogue wise, this put me more in mind of like the Cohen's true grit, maybe, with the formality of how they speak to each other and not quite as showy or overtly comic as like the hateful eight would be yeah there's also with tarantino this kind of more self-reflexive or kind of subversive edge to it where he's being a little more winky and this is very much playing within the template of you know cowboys versus indians it's not like he's not switching out the typical protagonist like having you know jamie fox be the lead in django here, it still very much is like the sheriff going to help rescue somebody's wife, you know, from the Indians. And in a way, it's even though it's not self-reflexive like Tarantino, there is a self-consciousness, I think, to knowing that he's playing with those tropes. And I think a big part of that is how he characterizes the Native American villains, that they go to great lengths to differentiate them that these are outcasts among native americans i mean these they're pretty much like monsters in this movie right yeah like these are the hills have eyes cannibals and it is really uh i mean i i kind of don't care too much about spoilers but there is something to this movie 
like for me watching this movie without knowing where it was going because I was for a long stretch of this movie I was confused about like well I don't know uh, if this belongs on a podcast with this title right and that is like the great fake out of the movie that he's playing with or you know not even a fake out it's not this like stunt I think so like it's more to the movie's credit that it is it, it, it all still feels in the same world it is just something you don't expect in an, an adventure movie uh, to have the villains be so extreme and especially just a certain part like a little section of the movie be so extreme as opposed to the rest of the movie there's something really interesting about that and yeah they are like it's a uh, it's Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian all of a sudden it goes from like John Wayne to Blood Meridian in like kind of kind of two minutes yeah totally it's very much in line with uh with True Grit that's that's a great call um because it, it's not doing the winking or those quick zoom in shots and the music isn't as up, upbeat as like a Django Unchained even or a Hateful Eight where he does have those moments of like entertainment right because at the end of the day I think Quentin um, his movies do want to entertain and kind of encapsulate like a larger audience as much as niche as his fetishes can be sometimes and his interests. He still wants as many eyeballs on it as possible. And with Zoller, there is like almost like I, I don't give a shit, you know, what who likes my stuff or whether you agree with it or not, I'm going to go to these extremes and I might take two hours to get there to get to that moment um, of insanity and a bit of a hostile-esque finale. Yeah, they definitely get you wrapped up. He uses that length in all of his movies. I think it's intrinsic to what makes them so effective and that he really earns all of that time. And he focuses on moments that most genre films just wouldn't normally dwell on or show you. So it's a lot about the camping and the traveling and Patrick Wilson dealing with this leg injury that just gets worse and worse and worse the longer that this goes. But there is so much stuff that is funny in this. There's so much great dialogue, whether it's really simple. One of my favorite lines might be when Kurt Russell is uh, talking to David Arquette's drifter who tells him his name is Buddy. And he says, you're pretty angry for a guy named Buddy. Like, it's just a great classic Western line. Oh, yeah. And Richard Jenkins is just a vision of, He's just so funny. The best, like, funny little old man. And, of course, also sometimes in the most tragic scenes, even in the biggest, like, intense, scary scene, he has, like, this whole little, like, anecdote story about believing that a flea circus was real. And he's, like, determined that those, that that was all real. I couldn't believe it. And they, you know, because they're, like, possibly going to die they let him they'd be like yeah yeah those fleas they were moving that stuff around i think they're alive and talented i like talk about like sharp uh hills and valleys of drama in a movie that like you know on paper i feel like is like you're not allowed to do and he's like pulling it off like kind of expertly is he not the mvp of this movie do you think Richard Jenkins, uh, I mean, he's always the character that I end up like, loving the most. Oh yeah, he where he's he's really funny, but he's not doesn't make a joke out of it. He's like he's too good of an actor for that. And like you said, he has the monologue about the flea circus, that like long conversation with uh, Kurt Russell about how he likes to read in the bathtub, but he can't keep he keeps getting the book wet. 
and they figure out, oh, I need to get one of the music stands when we get back. <laughs> and uh, I could just listen to these guys talk all day. Yeah, there's there's innocence to Richard Jenkins' character. And I think the advantage of having all these dragged out scenes and having all these all this time in the outdoors together is that you do g- gain a perspective for their friendship between J- Jenkins and Russell. So the stakes kind of arisen because of that. But um, I do think Jenkins is great. I feel like he hardly disappoints, right? Especially when he's... Uh, a character actor and whether it's uh i heard huckabees like the david o russell movie he he appears in for a brief scene and kind of steals it um to me matthew fox was the most surprising because i wasn't aware that he was capable of this kind of great of a role i I kind of solomon alex cross as the villain that the terrible morgan freeman movie um and he hasn't done a movie since this because of uh personal troubles but um I kind of like the loose cannon character uh, and oftentimes whether it's, you know, Jeremy Renner in the town or uh, Wayne grow and heat or something. Fox was definitely a trope and his character was supposed to play a certain kind of character. Um, but he did have some humility to him also. And, 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 uh, and some swagger, right? He had the white horse, the all white outfit. Um, I think Russell calls him out for being a bigot at one point. And uh, I I was kind of taken aback by him. Um, I wanted more David Arquette because we we've seen him in a cannibal western before in Ravenous, and um, which is which is a great movie. And uh, I was kind of like, oh, cool, Ar- Arquette's in this. You know, th- things are going to get a little unhinged and, and wild. Um, but much like Quentin and the Coens. Zoller really casts these like good voices, right? These character actors, character actors who have these unique um, intonations and pronunciations. And Richard Jenkins is one of those guys. Um, Fred Malamed, the bartender in uh, Bone Tomahawk, and he's also in Brawl and Cell Block as like the uh, the guard who checks Vince Vaughn's stuff in. Cy Abelman. Cy Abelman. Yep. <laughs> Every time he he showed up in both of those movies, he starts. Seth will not stop quoting lines from Esther is very cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he turns up and dragged across concrete too. So he's he's part of right. his players. Oh, yep. now I have to see that one. Yeah, you really do. I think Matthew Fox was the one who early on in The Learned Goat, which is one of the best bar names ever. <laughs> we both laughed at that. Yeah, every time they said it too. <laughs> so, it's not that funny, but it is. It's like a smart goat. It's just a great bar name. Like, I, I don't know why there aren't more bars that have names like that around here, because I would I would definitely go to them. Uh, but I believe it's him who talks to the like piano player and is asking him like, so why is it one song for $3 and three songs for $10? Shouldn't the price get lower the more money that you spend. <laughs> and uh, he's like, no, I get tired by the third song. <laughs> yeah, I, I could just go on like this whole episode talking about stuff like that. And so you have a movie that's is just about the character interaction basically for like, you know, 90 plus minutes. And then we get to the scene that if anyone has seen this movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about <laughs> when they're finally held captive. And... I had fun watching this with Seth because I had seen this movie before and I knew that he didn't. And it's definitely one of those that sneaks up on you. So I, I would like to get your, I don't know, your guys' just reactions to what happens in this scene. And also, if you haven't seen this movie and you plan to, maybe you want to pause now and go watch it before. But I do want to talk about what actually 
happens. Ooh, that was my reaction. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only accurate way to put it right there. Um, quick Fred Malama thing. I like, I always think of him in Raising Arizona, another Cohen's one where he's like the uh, prison counselor in the opening three minutes of the movie. And he's asking uh, the prisoners, why do you feel trapped? in this environment trapped and he keeps pronouncing it like that <laughs> i forgot that was him yeah and he talks about recidivism repeat offender <laughs> <laughs> okay then turn the right <laughs> but yeah sorry the the scene in the movie that everyone has been talking about and, and we'll talk about for eternity it does come out of left field in a way and, and you i mean th- this is his style that like intestines are going to be shown in his films that's like a common trait and things are going to get really nasty Perhaps you kind of prepare for that. And I thought the uh, the blood and the violence in Bone Tomahawk looked more realistic than uh, Brawl and Cell Block. Ron Cell Block almost became like, oh, a sure. car- <laughs> like a cartoon. I don't know if that was intentional yeah. or not, but he had a couple a uh, couple shots that were kind of like, wow. Um, but Bone Tomahawk, you, you do feel it all. And uh, I mean, he goes to ridiculous lengths to literally split a human <laughs> in, uh, in half. Um, and the other kind of Zoller quality, which I think is shown in that scene, and it's kind of like that scene is a microcosm of his work in general, is that anything goes in his films. Tropes are going to be reversed. Plots are going to be stalled. Um, the people who are going to be the heroes are going to be the unexpected ones. And who you think is going to end up alive won't. And you, you, you right, you can't really predict... Um, or who's going to die, or how badly they're going to get beaten. Um, and that feeling does put you on edge and in a totally different way than you know any sort of mainstream Hollywood movie. And I can see why Zoller does these movies with Cinestate, right? The, these guys who give him final cut and a couple million dollars uh, because he does want it done his way or else it's not getting made. Um, but yeah, brutal scene. I gotta say, this I did not anticipate, especially half hour, 45, even 50 minutes into this movie that I would encounter something this high on my list of like unwatchable things we've I've seen personally on this podcast. It it just, I don't know what it is about how he did that, like particular killing, the splitting of that guy. But I mean, like it's, it's everything because it is like they're watching it. He's talking to you while it's happening to him. It is the most disgusting things I can I don't, I don't know like that someone could dream up like is, is happening to this guy like and like splitting him balls first like he's naked it is I don't know like I'm just not anticipating that and it, I haven't had it in a while where I watched something where I was like blown back to like middle school or something where I would watch like a Halloween movie and some killing would like the particular one, I was like, this is, I, I crossed the threshold here. I kind of saw something. I was like, I don't know. Like, I, I, I kind of, I kind of like was uh, pretty, I was genuinely grossed out in like a, like kind of had, took a, took a minute to get to sleep that night way. Also the entire scenario, just how bleak it is. Cause it's not just that scene. It's also like what's left in your imagination, which of course is, you know, it's been said a million times is worse in a way like the way these people live and like the women that we see just for a moment that have no arms and legs and are pregnant and they have their like 
eyes gouged out and you're just like, oh, 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 it is so rough, so dark, so bleak. And even then there is still like he did his work properly. You are still like caring about these characters the whole time. And like they are still a light in this darkness that you can kind of still rally by but also doubly makes the horrors worse because you are so frightened that any of them is going to get hurt. Where in like a slasher movie, obviously you don't give a shit. Yeah, I think the trick is that he's gotten us so invested that it doesn't end up feeling like it's a cheap turnaround that, or doesn't seem to cheapen anything that came before. So it really does hit hard, especially because like you were saying, Seth, I think the big difference is the way that Kurt Russell is kind of talking this captive through uh, what's happening to him and assuring him that the cavalry is on their way and he'll be avenged. While at the same time, then he gets, he's getting brutally scalped and they, they like shove his scalp into his mouth, shove it down with a rock. And like I said, he's naked the whole time and they hold him upside down and start splitting him in half in, in, it really are good special effects. Like, I mean, that's about as realistic as I could imagine seeing something like that. It's kind of funny, too, because earlier on in the movie, we have this scene where Richard Jenkins is setting the bone in Patrick Wilson's leg. And so you're kind of bracing for a really grisly scene. And then it gives you mercifully, it like cuts away on him, like bringing the hammer down. And in retrospect, it feels like he's setting us up (laughs) with. Yes. Like, okay, it's that kind of movie. We're not going to have to worry about that. If I'm following the logic of the how the visuals work, you know, in another movie that would signal that like, okay, we're we're just not into that in this movie. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. Even the opening scene, uh, I couldn't understand who was cutting who was that David Arquette cutting someone who looked like Kurt Russell. He had like the same hair and goatee as Kurt Russell, but it wasn't him in like the opening shots of the movie. Yeah, it's either him or Sid Haig, the uh, who also is briefly in the film. Right uh, from you know the devil's rejects, yeah. But I get yeah. I guess they're just supposed to be innocent people that they're killing and robbing before they encounter our first encounter with the cannibals. Right. Um, I mean, and, and that scene was kind of powerful because you're seeing the the bloodletting right away, and then in the abduction scene we don't see anything. We just hear about it the next day when Cy Abelman storms into Carrasso's house and says. Bad, bad news, Daddy. Yeah, I think that works great too. That we never, we never get, you know, uh, cutaways to them, you know, being captive. It's kind of left this mystery as exactly what they're going to encounter, if anyone is even still alive when they get there. Uh, and I find that to be really effective. I love structural things like that um, that make the payoff so intense when you finally get there. And this definitely pulls that off. Um, but so what do you guys, I mean, think about how the, uh, these villains are portrayed, you know, is there just seem to be an aspect of ass covering with him, like, you know, bringing in a, a native American American character to make sure that we see that, <laughs> you know, these are, these are like the regular good native Americans. And these are the outcasts who might as well be like the cave monsters in the descent. And it does seem like even even though they're going to rescue his wife, the the damsel in distress, the the movie takes pains to show that, you know, she is the town doctor and is capable, you know, herself. And 
it does seem like the the movie is very deliberately trying to forestall some possible criticisms of the tropes that it's working with, uh, which I think is admirable and maybe is something that gets he gets less of a pass for maybe as his movies go on and he keeps poking at those things. But uh, I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts about this? Does that all work for you? <laughs> this is where it gets... Uh, yeah, I mean, this is where the rubber hits the road. I know this is like for a lot of people... And I and I've just seen on on the internet and like reviews and stuff, uh, where some people like go as far as to say that this is flat out like racist or like is in the, uh, some sort of uh, American tradition of like cowboy movies being about how we these people needed to get kicked out and killed and they they were savages blah 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 like that this is in almost in that spirit um, or trying to like make a way of it being in that spirit that isn't so offensive, like, which is still like this kind of like strange, like trying to have your cake and eat it too. Um, which I found some of the arguments, like, I don't know. I, I don't really hold with it necessarily, but it is like this sort of, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird idea. Cause it is like, Basically, it felt like he was trying to create these villains where everyone can basically be racist against them because they are, I suppose, if we're going to be racist, we're going to be racist against this, like, clan of cannibals that rape women and destroy everyone and, like, do this to people, I guess. I don't know. It's like a very weird kind of exercise going on there if there is indeed an exercise going on there. Maybe he should have just actually made them monsters. I don't know. I don't know. Did that ever hurt anybody? Like, he might as well by that point. Yeah. I don't know. That could have been a neat twist. Yeah, they, they got to do the troglodyte universe. Like, The Descent, I totally thought of that towards the end of this movie, and then even Barbarian. Mm. Yeah, Zoller is, he's complicated because he invites ridicule and discussion, and he's almost super conservative and racist and then yet he's not also I, I feel i feel like he's throwing these ideas out so people can put labels on him or th that people can critique him but at, at the end of the day he's kind of having his characters do that talking and he's how ha he's having the story lead the political discussion in a way and i think he's so indebted to and concerned with paying homage to the films that he likes, and especially the the westerns with Bone Tomahawk, that he's following that tradition to a T. And those films of Peck and Paw and John Ford and John Wayne, they were often questionable and and uh, racist and uh, you know reprehensible to to many degrees. And I think he's kind of staying in tune with that that tradition and, and that storyline. And I think the biggest way he's sort of similar to Quentin in that regard is the more you label him as being, more you label Zoller as being maybe more right-leaning or, or more um, sort of controversial, the more he's going to do those things that you think make him controversial. And, uh, you know, drag across concrete, the fact that he casts Mel Gibson, who is canceled in real life more or less, uh, to play a cop who's canceled in the movie um, is some, you know, neat meta casting on his part, but also maybe an F you to the audience or to critics who, who dislike him. But again, the fact that he's generating any sort of dialogue 
whether it's good or bad, I, I think is great for film in, in general. I, I think it's good for cinema to have someone who's, you know, his viewpoint is both, he wears it on his sleeves a lot and he wears it through the dialogue of his characters. And in this film, Matthew Fox perhaps is kind of the uh, the gateway racist um, for the film and even his attire says as much. I, I sort of invite the the ideas that, that he wants to throw out because... It's more than you can say for, you know, mo- most directors working at this sort of level. Yeah, there does seem to be like a a trollish aspect to him that he enjoys poking at those things. And at best, I do think it does get genuinely provocative in that he's kind of openly acknowledging these things that are usually just inherent to exploitation films and the genre things that he's riffing on. And not just those, but plenty of action movies that are still coming out, like Taken and all the films that are going, you know, riding that whole Death Wish style, um, you know, revenge fantasies that there is a racism and sexism and xenophobia kind of ingrained in that, which those movies usually don't engage with or they try to bury it down. And he's a little more upfront about putting it out there at the risk of upsetting people, but still always tempering it to give him this plausible deniability. And I think you can see that with every movie. It's this really interesting push and pull of those elements. And it does feel, you know, kind of dangerous, whether you think that it's, it's, uh, I mean, dangerous in a good way, that it feels like volatile and that anything could happen and that you're not safe within these. The movie's not always going to make you feel better about being confronted with that stuff. And I think, especially with this movie, I think he gets the balance pretty well. Yeah, I mean, both of these movies do feel like they're playing in a pulp fantasy sort of world, almost. As much as certain parts, especially the beginnings of both movies, are sort of trying to lull you into a sense that you are in the real world. But then they stretch into some other place that we are not familiar with that is exaggerated and, like, an exploitation world or whatever you want to call it. Um, which yeah, does follow a tradition and they're like, obviously pulp Westerns from the forties or whatever. They are not portraying native Americans, for instance, properly. They don't, they, they're not actually doing research. They are there to be, you know, they're following the new trend, which is Westerns or something. This, this trend of Westerns and they're using they just need a monster, so the monster is the Native Americans in, in those. And it feels like this movie is playing in that tradition and seeing that as the, a fantasy, but finding a new way of doing it. I just, I can do that math, I guess. The only thing is just like worrying that maybe, like I could understand other, I don't know, like other audience members maybe not being able to do that math or like want caring to or not being very impressed by what what I have to say in that regard and yeah I don't know at the end of both of these I am like I enjoy them but I'm kind of worried about this guy or like I wonder <laughs> who is this person which I I kind of had a hard time I like read a little bit of a couple articles like one interview I feel like Cause he's like accused by some people of being like this, like these are like Trump exploitation or something. Like he's a Trumper. He's like a racist. Like, 
do you guys know more about him? I feel like I could only get like a little bit, little bits and pieces of who this guy is. He seems to be pretty coy about that stuff from what I can tell. Yeah. I think the biggest smoking gun that's kind of emerged over the last couple of years is this producer that who produced all of these movies, uh, Dallas Saunier or Saunier. He founded the production company that's what, that put these movies out. Uh, he owned Fangoria for a little bit. And these, you know, misconduct allegations came out around his, I'm not sure specifically him, but how he handled them like around his productions that ended up closing down the studio. And now I guess he works for the Daily Wire with Ben Shapiro and produces movies like What is a Woman that Matt Walsh quote unquote documentary. Oh, see, this is the stuff I was looking for. Okay. Ding, ding. He's, this is the producer. He has come out as this full, like, MAGA guy. And, the, you know, I don't know if it could be considered guilt by association or that there is, may, you know, something more to that, too. I don't think that we've had a full mask-off moment for Zoller yet, unless there's something that, that I've missed. Yeah, no, I mean, Dal Sanya is uh, definitely the name to mention here in the sense that he's the one who gives Zoller the the ability to make these films on Final Cut. And I'm not sure another studio or, or producer maybe would allow a movie to go to these lengths, perhaps both in violence, but mostly maybe in actual length and, and runtime. Um, and uh, apparently Zoller is very protective. Uh, there's a great Ringer article on uh, kind of the history of Cinestate and... Uh, their kind of focus on the flyover state genre or the flyover state movies in general. And most of them, you know, n not many people see and they kind of are released on, on VOD. But the return on investment for Bone Tomahawk was, was really high and it has almost allowed them to keep making these films and to keep funding other directors. I think it's called Body at Sparrow Creek with James Badgedale, which is worth a watch. It's a pretty darn good movie that Cinestate also produced. But yeah, it, there is a little bit of the guilt by association, the fact that Cinestate is more overtly questionable in, in some of its beliefs. And, and just because, you know, Zoller gets lumped into that or just because they're making his films, he gets this label, right? And it is interesting that I think his humor in his movies, his humor, his dialogue, the kind of quippiness and the uh, maybe loose nature of the characters almost does absolve the kind of question mark scenes or the kind of moments where, where you do uh, wonder what's the underlying message or uh, underlying um, thought behind a scene. Yeah, Seth and I were talking about this just after we watched, I think, Brawl and Selbach 99 too, that studios like this are churning out these VOD movies, you know, that are action films, revenge thrillers, or cheap westerns, basically B-movies that just come out like on streaming services just by the ton every year. Yeah, it was going to sell. It is like, yeah. And it is like they struck gold with Zoller. Like they actually got this guy who turned out to be like an incredibly talented artist and filmmaker who has really elevated these things with his craft that I could, I mean, looking at the list of all the other movies that they made, he's definitely like their star player who, who ended up bringing them like actual acclaim and awards and a critical um, consensus almost about, you know, their worth. So you do have to, I guess you do have to give them credit for 
them being responsible for the ecosystem where he could make these movies exactly the way they are because it's the perverseness about their presentation all these different things about them that makes them so exciting to me but uh i want to give a chance to, in case there's anything we didn't talk about for this particular movie um this is usually the point where we each declare whether or not we would unwatch a movie uh if we were able to which i definitely would not uh with this just because he is so even though he's working in this kind of disreputable uh, genre he does it with such nerve and conviction that his movies in general are just genuinely thrilling to me and i hope that we haven't seen the last of them although who knows it seems like it just depends if there's gonna he's gonna be able to get more money and uh, i wish i could give it to him <laughs> whoa but maybe matt will be able to so uh seth what about you and then we'll give matt the last word yeah like i am on two levels with this and it's so hard and same with the next movie a little bit i guess where it is this like i enjoy this and i feel like i can enjoy it on its transgressive levels and on its genre levels but again i'm like pretty well versed in such things and i enjoy things that are stretched and maybe even like problematic in a sense like in a vacuum i i guess there is Something I, I can get behind with the criticism, even if I'm not making it, I can understand why like someone, especially Native Americans or who would watch this and be like, do we really need this? Do we really need this tradition that I that I spoke about earlier, which is like pulp fantasy Westerns where Native Americans, even though, again, like there's a Native American who says like there's one Native American in this that says they're worse than anyone uh, or something like. But yes, it's portrayed. It's in that tradition where they are used as the bad guys as like subhuman or something like that. Again, like I enjoy it. It's like on the level of a movie that gets this wide a distribution. I mean, we're not talking about ceramics. We're talking about movies that get seen and have big people in them. And I don't know, I guess if I was this guy's friend, I might be like a little like, are you sure? <laughs> And I'm not going to watch the movie. I found it to be like a really good Western. And I like Westerns more and more as I get older. Big surprise. I don't know. Old guy thing. But uh, I would definitely unwatch the scene. I don't think I, man, if I watch this again, I, I, I'm i going to skip it. I, I want to be like a cool, I'm over it kind of person. But I was spooked, genuinely spooked and scared. And I'm never going to watch that scene again. <laughs> I had a great time watching Seth watch it. That's all I'll say. Gleeful little demon. You're a troglodyte, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> Classic troglodyte. Yeah, I mean, he makes the unwatchable watchable, Zoller. I think that's that might be the, the theme of his movies in many ways. It's things that, by the time they are really gross and nasty, they're still gross and nasty, but it's more palatable. I looked away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a sick human. I, I don't know. but I'm glad he helped you, though. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I also find myself liking Westerns more as I've, as I've gotten older. And there aren't many that come out nowadays. It feels like, what, one, one a year? One every few years, if that, that are notable or get any sort of wide release or limited release. Um, so that when they do come out, 
I feel like they have to be pushing the form in some way or fashion. And, and with Zoller, it's dialogue, it's relationships, and it's brutal violence. Um, you know, with Power of the Dog, it's some other stuff going on and some mystery. Or, you know, The Proposition was another film that I thought of a lot while watching this, which is another great the Guy Pierce, Australian directed Western with some intense violence. But um, I, I like that he he made a movie that didn't feel safe at all. And uh, although I'm I'm saying the scenes were watchable, um, you know, truth be told, I, I was kind of lo- looking away and cringing at it. But uh, I, I do feel like he imprinted everything about himself as like a director and all his likes and dislikes on screen and uh and it created a, a film that you know is remembered and talked about for for nasty things and and yet it also kind of has a lot of heart and has a lot of um great banter and kind of humanity to it all right so not safe for seth but we got two two and a half thumbs up here my thumbs up it's just scared it's just frightened all right three thumbs one but one trembling one trembling sweaty thumb which brings us to his follow-up film in 2017, which is Brawl in Cell Block 99, which is my personal favorite of his films. Uh, and is similar in many ways, but also different in that it's this is much more narrowly focused on one character, even though we have a bunch of, you know, memorable other characters who do show up throughout. This is less of an ensemble piece, I think, than more of a a single hero's journey for Vince Vaughn, who we were talking about earlier. This is kind of his, this is like his, you know, Christian Bale or Robert De Niro kind of role where they show up with their head shaved and they're all bulked up and really showing like what they can do. And he does, we always see that big cross tattoo on the back of his head. And uh, I don't know, I think he's really good here. He, I think he struggled to find good dramatic roles his like his whole career basically and obviously he's mostly known for the big studio comedies but this is where I think it all clicks together. I didn't know he had it in him. Yeah, Psycho definitely didn't give an indication that <laughs> that he had it in him. Yeah, was that was that a surprise to you, Matt, when you first saw this? Yeah, I mean, d- definitely. I knew he had in his bad movies like Domestic Disturbance. Um we saw him play villains before and we saw him play, you know, Norman Bates and psycho. We've seen that he has an evil side and even clay pigeons, which is a movie I kind of like that was always on TV for some reason growing up and in, in the early aughts and late nineties with, uh, with Joaquin Phoenix, where he plays kind of like a Western cowboy slash sheriff, but he's not, but Zoller uses Vince Vaughn in, in, in such a great way here because he is a tall guy. He's kind of lanky and he's got this kind of gait this very unique walk, which we see on a couple of times. It's kind of, his hands are kind of loose. He almost looks gangly um, and almost too big for his own good. And yet he's more jacked here than usual. He's got a huge cross on his, uh, on the back of his head. He's a skinhead, but we never find out that he's like, you know, in some Nazi troop or something, right? It's not that. And again, this goes to that thing that his films do, which is they subvert what you think is going to happen. And uh, all these, kind of stereotypes of how someone looks. Well, it turns out that he's actually a really nice family guy. Um, and he's very caring for Jennifer Carpenter, his wife in the film. And um, 
that relationship is kind of sweet, despite the fact that this guy is about to beat the crap out of everyone we're going to see in the film. And boy, he's just an enormous guy. I kept seeing him like standing next to other actors. I'm like, wow, he's huge. <laughs> I'd want him on my boxing team. And I'm just impressed. I never thought that I would watch a movie and I found myself like mm-hmm. 30 minutes into the movie forgetting that it was Vince Vaughn. I never thought, especially the second I knew he was in it. Like, it was just like, oh, it's going to be a hoot. It's going to be a weird little hoot, huh? And I forgot that it was him. I never thought that he would be able to, like, fully disappear as an actor just because he is, I don't know, he's a meme in himself. He is one of those actors that everyone knows. He's in your head or whatever. And I again, just because I've never seen him really stretch himself, and maybe I just haven't seen the right Vince Vaughn movies, but. Yeah, and he I love his his character introduction basically in this movie is him finding out that his wife has been cheating on him and he sends her inside and he just methodically dismantles her car with his bare hands like reaches in to and pulls out like the turn signal and reaches inside and pulls out the rearview mirror and then walks inside and sits down and just has this patient like respectful conversation with her about where they went wrong. You're terrified. You think <laughs> you know who this guy is. And like after that, like, oh boy, here's this wife beating guy. And we're about to see this domestic violence scene. And it's going to be one of those movies. Uh, but no, he's like, we're going to sort this out. It's going to be all right. I forgive you. You know, this whole like thing, <laughs> like, it's very like beautiful little back and forth they have as his whole hand is broken and bleeding yeah it's great and i believe there's like at least 45 minutes passes before he gets to prison in this movie so we have a long time to get to know him and all these little sweet moments where he's waking up in the middle of the night and talking to the baby in her belly and you know the thing that gets him arrested in the first place then is him deciding to go back and help the cops like fight the drug dealers that he was just doing a pickup with. I guess he doesn't like that they ended up getting into a firefight with them and he turns around to like save the day, which gets him nowhere. Yeah, I was confused by that. He likes the (laughs) cops. He likes America. I don't know. Yeah. What was that? He has two American flags. I know. Yeah, is that it? I don't know. It was very like, is this, I I don't know if there was some sort of like pro-American, like pro cop or something i don't even know what that was he has some kind of a this moral code which isn't always totally distinguishable but i think it makes him a really fascinating character weird is that it extends to like i'm not gonna like killing cops is not okay but you know dealing drugs is and it's all you know but it's all about his wife and his daughter but the right kind of drugs not heroin but meth right the good drugs and I think it makes him very interesting. Yeah. And the American flag is in a couple shots. It's literally sticking out of his forehead. Um, so the uh, the staging in the film and the kind of shot selection, again, just as he did in Bone Tomahawk, there's a lot of really cool moments where the flag is kind of flailing in the air with, with, with the wind. Um, and is it a movie about America? Is it a commentary about um America and and I do think this film and Drag Across Concrete do share this uh this commentary on classism and class structure and kind of 
climbing to aspire to a certain, I don't know, dem- demographic that these characters want to get to, and yet they have to pay a price in order to do so. And Brawl definitely has that. And the fact that, like you said, Mark, the fact that it takes, you know, 40 minutes over a half hour to even get to the prison, that in this film is sort is the kind of driver, the the tension that you get from it, because you know he's going to end up in a prison. You know there's going to be fights happening, but how is he going to get there and when is that going to happen? And again, he casts these people who deliver these kind of catchy phrases with voices, with cigars. And I mean, Don Johnson kind of steals the movie for for a good bit there. Um, I think he's terrific. Oh, he's incredible. Yeah, the prison hopping kind of reminded me also of like Snowpiercer in, in, in a strange way where, again, it was commentary on class and getting past the next train car, getting to the head of the train. Um, whereas here, it's like moving up in prisons, moving up to the to the real McCoy, uh, you know, and uh, that that was kind of awesome. Yeah, it really feels like he's going further and further down the levels of hell, and it gets more. It does get more and more over the top as it goes, but I think it might be an hour before, like the the real plot makes itself known. Which for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's basically that he's in a minimum security prison and is made aware that the bad guys who he was responsible for losing their drug money have kidnapped his wife. Udo Kier comes to visit him. Yeah. Which is just wild. Always great to see him turn (laughs) uh, up. Yeah, they have a evil Asian experimental abortionist that Udo Kier (laughs) is, uh, you know, kind of almost feels like they're dating or something, him and Udo. They just have this evil villain relationship, but uh, they, those two need a spinoff for sure. They're gonna do an experimental, like pull the limbs off of your baby abortion and send it to him in prison if he doesn't kill this guy in uh, the maximum security prison. That's one of the unnamed uh, scripts for Zoller. It's the Udo Kier an abortionist uh, miniseries. <laughs> yes, soap opera. Count me in. Count me in. <laughs> it's ludicrous. So that yeah, that gives, and until that point, you know, we had this long introduction to him going into jail and, you know, he meets Lefty, the friendly old timer who gives him the orientation and this guard who wants to get him on the boxing team and is actually being kind of nice to him. And it seems almost for a second that like, you know, Shawshank redemption is about to kick off. Right. It's a total red herring thing. It's yeah. like uh, you have the full on like, hey, you know what? You look like you could box. And he's like, oh, I don't do that anymore. And he keeps pursuing him. And we all know that plot mechanic that is working there that is moving towards like he's eventually going to become this cool prison boxer guy. That's not the movie, though. He goes to cartoon jail. Yeah, he's given license to to beat the shit out of as many people as he can. So he keeps getting sent further and further down to this levels of maximum security. And the one thing that's always really stuck in my memory from this movie is that even though you can tell he probably is a little fond of this prison guard, you know, boxing coach guy, that he's the one he has to attack. And the way that he almost snaps his arm completely off is so just shocking and <laughs> nerve wracking. So mean. Just killing exactly. that movie I thought it was. Yeah. Killing, and that's just the start of the 
the face smashing that ends up happening here. But you're right. This the movie keeps taking its time though, then introducing him into the maximum security. And we got Don Johnson coming out there and taking over the movie. And it really they put him this character through so much to get down. Like he has to go through so much punishment himself uh with retaliation from these guards that's uh so many times he gets shocked by this shock collar thing they put around him. Like so much so many times in the movie we watch him like be fall down to his knees and it just feels like such a hopeless situation. Uh but that's all part of the design. And uh, I, I think also the so one of the defenses people would have for this movie is that, you know, obviously we have a lot of Hispanic, you know, drug dealers and bad guys and stuff here. But the the black guards tend to be the friendlier ones, right? And it's the white maximum security guards who end up being the worst. So I know, do you think that this pushes any buttons like that? I definitely think the Korean abortionist seems a little outlandish. Yes. But uh, I don't know, do you think this movie does worse or better than Bone Tomahawk with the, you know, white hero paradigm? Once again, of course, trying to save his, uh, you know, protect his beautiful wife and daughter. Yeah, I mean, this film definitely kind of uh, faces the the white American dream head on, right? Like, what are the what are the stakes this guy is willing to go to to have a Cadillac Escalade and a Mercedes in his driveway and have this big house? And yet, I feel like the uh, the scenes in his home and the rooms, there is kind of like things don't look that much nicer or that much better, and they kind of parallel the in some ways the you know great lengths of hell that he goes to and the prisons themselves like the prisons almost become parallels to the the houses and the rooms that he lived with in whatever suburb he's in maybe new jersey because you we kind of see new york in the in the skyline in the background um but yeah i mean this i mean movie like the the n-word is thrown around a couple times where, where uh one of the guy that he works under um asks for a pronunciation of a word or something and then the uh, the Mexican deal, drug dealer guy, one of them is like juiced up. And, and that's why Vince Vaughn doesn't want to work with him on the specific mission, the, the one operation they go on that ends up leading him to jail. Even though, he, as we said, he could have easily gotten away. I'm not sure what the moral compass was telling him in that moment. But there's more, there's more stuff going on uh, that's like tailored to like modern day conversation and topics and i think as a result of that maybe it feels um and probably is um you know more questionable or kind of uh controversial the like you said the, the abortionist thing was just insane um and the look of of the guy's face when he couldn't perform the operation was just complete disgust like he, this guy was clearly oh yeah that did make <laughs> me laugh i mean <laughs> yeah that was good such ennui from not being able to do his abortion. It is such a like shamelessly tasteless plot device to have an abortionist be part of all of this. <laughs> Once again, if I'm the guy like and I'm friends with Zoller, I'm like, okay, like even if Zoller is like is not pro-life or something, it just it's just like <laughs> I don't know. Like people are gonna see this and you know, what are they gonna think of some experimental abortionist being the pinnacle of all worst things that can happen in this movie. Um, you know, it's just like, just inviting it. And if there is some sort, and if Zoller is like a cool guy and not a shithead, 
and is just trolling on some level. And it is like creating, this is my generous take that I hope is true, that he is creating a, the, the, the best kind of trap for like just self-hating leftists or something to fall into and write an essay about this movie. Then he's, I, I, I'm, I'm into it and more power to him. Uh, I don't know. Or I guess, I don't know how great of an exercise that is, but I don't know. I, I, you know, but at the same time, it is just like, you gotta, like, this is, is, and again, I'm worried if that it's not, it's like for far the other direction and he is playing with something there that is real or I don't know. Uh, he's just inviting it by having this in there, even if it is him just being like, I just thought of this extreme crazy thing, you know? He just knows that if you say abortion in a movie, lights go on. Yeah, he's having, he's, I think he does have fun with that kind of stuff. And I think this conversation would be a lot different if we had been talking about Dragged Across Concrete, which, you know, we're not going to get into in depth or anything. I know Seth hasn't even seen it, Uh, but I revisited it a little bit uh, yesterday just to kind of refresh myself. And I think that's really where he maybe does to like tip his hand a little too far or that things aren't quite as balanced out in that movie, at least in the early scenes. Like it really does. I mean, he's using Mel Gibson. Yeah. That alone is central. Role. It's kind of an edge Lordy uh, move and just wrong. Yeah. There's, it does seem to revel in like the civil rights violations and it really does make him seem like he is on the, is like an anti cancel culture, you know, kind of guy. And yeah, that stuff gets a little messier. I think in that movie here, I still think it's mostly defensible. A few, a few particular elements aside. And he is, again, making those, always making those little efforts. Like even the wife who, you know, spends the whole movie being captive almost does end up getting her retribution at the end. Like she gets to take the machine gun and fire it at the abortionist. Uh, spoiler alert. Nothing I like more than my pregnant white wife with a machine gun in her hand, killing some foreigners. Let's get a third flag. Going to kill some Nazis. Yeah. Just gets me hot and spicy. And just like with Bone Tomahawk, this isn't a, it's, it's not doing like an Inglorious Bastards, you know, rewriting history or Django Unchained, the Western where the escaped slave is the hero. It's not really subverting things in that way. This is still the, this is still the hero's journey of the regular exploitation film. But he just, he draws it out to such lengths. And it's, even though he's, genuinely stoking our bloodlust in that kind of id way. I don't know. It's, it is satisfying. <laughs> and the way that he makes it more bracing and harrowing at times helps earn it a little, I guess, that it, there is a lot of pain to get through here, to get to the catharsis of him finally getting revenge. Totally, yeah. And by the time he gets it, he's almost you know resolved or accepts his fate towards the end. The subversion in this film is kind of surprising, right? We talked about the guard who wants him to be in his boxing club. And then the moment that guy starts apologizing for pushing Vince Vaughn to be in it, then he kills him um, and breaks his, or doesn't kill him. He almost tears his arm off. No more boxing for him. (laughs) Yeah, those days are done. And then the moment we think that Vince Vaughn, he's gone so far with like, killing everyone in jail and the prison guards who suck and the um at least he kills like the annoying guy in the don johnson troop the the the, sh- the shorter guy who's like running a little around. guy yeah yeah the the weasel so that that was at least fulfilling but 
Oh, yeah, sadist. For a second, I thought he was going to get out of that jail somehow, even though it looked like they were in the descent, right? They were, like, in some cave that was God knows where. <laughs> but, you know, then he doesn't get out. Yeah, and he makes a point of not wanting to kill anybody that he doesn't have to and that he's only doing all this because he basically has his mind set on this one goal, like, well, I have no choice now but to go through these people. And I'm pretty sure there's a moment where he finally ki actually kills a guard. I think it might be the little guy whose head he smashes in the uh, with the, the door. The other guard is like, you killed him. And he's like, I know what I did. And this wasn't like, this is the first guy, this is the first person I killed, you know, who didn't necessarily deserve it. And, you know, he's been holding this superhuman strength in that he's always been capable of, but doesn't want to. And like you said early on, it's when he's talking with the fellow drug dealer who's asking him, if, oh, should, if I, when I say the M word, should it be with the A or the ER? And his response is something like, you know, no matter which way you say it, it's going to sound wrong in your mouth. <laughs> so he's very distinctly not those things. If he's a skinhead, he's a nice one. Yeah. Maybe he was just losing his hair, you know? I suspect the Amnesty International would frown upon the contents of this room. Cell block 99 is the prison. Within the prison, you will stay down here until you're sorted out or carried yeah. out. <laughs> not bad. <laughs> that was pretty good. Yeah. Appreciate it. That's the first Don Johnson I've ever heard. But uh, there's a certain point when, you know, the scheme is revealed basically to be to get him into a room with his guys he betrayed to be tortured every day by them. And uh, it becomes about him, you know, rescuing his wife by, you know, taking one of them hostage but that's basically where all the head crushing starts, which there is so much of in this movie. There's like a, a particular moment where he's telling them, like, give me that phone or I'm going to kill this guy. And they try to take a moment to not give him the phone. And he just like drags him across the, the floor until their, their whole face comes off. That's the martial arts master who's the, the, the Asian martial arts master, which goes brings it to full exploitation world, I feel like. Which, I, I don't know, that's where it started to get, like, a little too silly for me. I was just like, this is officially, like, just absurd nonsense or something. I don't know, just, like, fully into Kill Bill mode or something. It's definitely why this fits on this podcast, I think, because there's so much gross. Besides the head stomping, there's eyes gouging and all kinds of limbs snapping. And, uh, I mean, the last shot of this movie is, again... We're gonna we spoil everything on this podcast. So if you want to watch this movie, please go do. Um, but we do have kind of this emotional conclusion where he gets to finally speak with his wife. And I don't know, do you think it undercuts it the way that it ends with this ridiculous like dummy getting its face blown off in the last shot? Or is that all part and parcel of <laughs> yeah. uh, you know the spirit of this movie? Again, I'm like, am I just Fully in 1970s exploitation world, and that at that point, I guess um, I don't know. <laughs> it is just pretty, pretty unconvincing. Last shot, I don't know. And I like that that was the choice that you know Don Johnson's character makes. Right, they're not gonna have him go to another prison. I'm sh this is as low as you can go in hell. Right, this is the last stop. Um, from here, it's from here, it's goodbye, or I don't know, hang out for a couple more days and probably kill a bunch of other guards so um that was interesting that he just shot him right it, it was <laughs> it was over crazy movie the other parts that i liked were all like the blue 
colors the the Zoller used the blue hues um was definitely a choice and it kind of made the dinginess and the crappiness of the prisons he was in stand out and look even scarier than it was um and it also kind of like i was saying earlier it made even when he got that nice house it didn't feel almost that much different right like he's got this house it's a lot nicer now he's got a couple cars um but there is still this feeling this brooding feeling that something bad is going to happen um and at that point we know something's bad is going to happen because he, he has to end up in jail uh but yeah a lot of limbs broken in the in this movie this was a big like arms and and uh and legs and hand combat um i mean the the action was incredible i i can't think of like a non or i can't think of an american movie in in recent memory that looked this good that wasn't you know i don't know liam neeson kicking people's ass and his his films the other part that was funny was the udo cure back out out of uh his boss's house <laughs> when he was like slow motion backing out in his <laughs> old escalade it wasn't escalate it was like a crown victoria whatever car was and he's like what a shit show or something he says or what a mess right i don't get to a board today <laughs> right before he gets his he sure does but uh, yeah we haven't really talked a lot about zollard as a director but i think he does a really good job not not super showy necessarily anyway he still seems fundamentally more of like a writer to me but these are still really well-made movies and his sense of pacing you know within scenes is always very strong and like you said matt there's there is more stuff going on with the lighting and and things in these movies and i think it is for the best that he is making them and not you know giving them over to maybe a, a more polished or conventional director and so i uh yeah, I love this movie. Um, I, it was one of my favorite movies of the year when it first came out. Uh, it, it really is a wild ride. And I mean, so far, I like all three of his movies. Uh, probably, I would say this is my favorite in Dragged Across Concrete, maybe the, the least, but I still liked it. And, um, you know, there is something about these exploitation movies that I think is fundamentally conservative like built into them there's always some sort of moralistic thing going on uh even in a lot of the classic exploitation films um and just kind of a punitiveness you know towards people who are not um on the right side of things and i do feel like he's playing with that in a way that's interesting and provocative and maybe sometimes a little uh irresponsible but it does add to how alive and vital they feel so i'm definitely not going to unwatch this one um but what about you seth or is it just certain scenes uh no this one didn't really spook me too bad uh i am just amazed like mark's just such a tough cookie with silly absurd things and i just figure like this this is the one you really like i like was not <laughs> anticipating yeah. that at all as I like, you know, I am so into so many of the like silly, absurd things we've done on here. And uh, I'm not that into this, I guess, as far as like, maybe it's because it's in the vein of action extremity or something. Uh, I don't know. It just like I was amazed you guys liked the whole Don Johnson thing. I thought he was just silly. I don't know. <laughs> I just thought it was real silly to me. And like the whole like 
which is I guess what it's going for. I don't I don't know, but kind of like typical like I'm smoking a cigar or something. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I I guess I just would rather Tarantino do this thing, and I even when he does it, I'm still like, do I is is this really all that important or viable or worth all the talk that people do about it? Um, just because it's like all these traditions coming to fruition and like a wave crashing or something. Uh, and again, like I don't want to get caught totally in the discourse trap that he's maybe laying for me here, but either way there is just like some weird, like by the end, I just think it's so wildly weird and uneven. I just can't kind of get lost. Like the ending like with Udo and the the Asian abortionist and just like the layers of silliness. Uh, I'm, I, I mean, I'm saying all this, I did enjoy it. I enjoy it like as a watching experience, but I don't know. I didn't see it as like very, very deep or like something very of quality or I'm like really looking at this director in the way that I felt with Bone Tomahawk, which felt like, it was really an earned movie and it, it extremes were earned and things like that. But impressive what Vince Vaughn can do. Who knew? Who knew? Won't unwatch it, though. All right. And Matt, I am interested what how you rank his three movies uh, here in your final thoughts. Wow. Um, this might be my favorite uh, just because of Don Johnson. And they're all kind of in the same like world and and they're closely ranked. Like I bone Tomahawk is next. So yeah, I mean, I think that this film has a lot of watchability. It's, it's cool to see a prison movie. Like the, if we think Westerns are rare, I'm not even sure like what's a prison movie that's come out in the last uh, 10 or 15 years. That's had any um, stay in, in the culture or is, decent anyway um yeah it felt like he was pushing boundaries that we hadn't yet seen in like action or violent movies um and just the feel of his films i feel like the, there's like a a comfort level or like a sense of cool and, and, and a sense of like command for the form i think he is really confident as a filmmaker that's like those are words that are thrown around maybe a lot and who knows what they mean but i think it means that there is a choice for everything he's doing and there, and there is an execution like it ends up um, affecting the plot or affecting the narrative in a way. And uh, yeah, like, you know, it's, this is a non-existent genre of a film. Um, and I loved what he did with it. And the other part that I really loved is that there's no backstory here, right? There, there is no filling up narrative with, with like plot points from the past. And uh it was affecting, right? It was almost even more affecting because it's like the unknown, right? The imagination starts to work its wonders and we can discuss or think about who the heck Vince Vaughn was in his previous life. All right, yeah. And I, yeah, I mean, really just to kind of answer your question, Seth, it might just be as simple as, you know, I just enjoy the, even if this is like a surface level, just fun experience that, I don't know, there aren't a lot of movies that always hit me that, same way of just like being so wrapped up in what is going to happen next and um this fully formed reality like no matter how silly it gets i guess i'm just happy to just to find something to be like 
funny and thrilling on a you know purely superficial uh, level. And I was even feeling that way while I was watching Dragged Across Concrete. It's like, man, I wish that we could have like 10 movies like this a year. Uh, even, even if they're not on there, you know? Yeah, we are kind of starved for these things. I will admit that, especially starved for a director being himself. Like that is what I value these for. I don't know if, I mean, that's always the thing, like be yourself, but I don't, doesn't mean I, I, will, <laughs> I will like you. Yeah. But I'll be happy that you're being yourself rather than lying to me. You know? <laughs> and yeah, a lot of people are lying to me right now in, in movies. Creating some kind of false, like, I don't know, uh, algorithm-based persona or something out of their stories. Like, yeah. All right, Matt. So before I let you go, I want to make sure we give you our little quick questionnaire here uh, inside the Actors Studio style. And our first question for you Matt Belenke, is what is your favorite film? A common answer, it changes all the time, and every day it could be anything. Mm -hmm. Today, um, then. Mm. Today. <laughs> but today, I think it's uh, Mulholland Drive. Cool. Oh, nice. Yeah, two th I was going to say The Shining, but I just audibled and, and uh, remembered one of my letterboxed movies. Um, Mulholland Drive from 2001, uh, David Lynch. All right, yeah, that's also one of my favorite movies, and I just got the the criterion like uhd blu-ray of that and so i need to crack that open i mean to have seth over to watch that <laughs> so maybe next week seth next next all right so uh what is a film where your opinion drastically changed either that you hated and ended up liking or vice versa yeah so i think two here one no country for old men uh, I saw the first half of it Thanksgiving weekend, 2007, with my college roommate in Connecticut because he lived there. And there were a fire alarm broke out at the scene where Woody Harrelson is uh, in the room with Javier Bardem and he's about to die. And so I didn't finish the movie. We, we exited. Then I finished it later on. And up till that point, I think I hated it. And then towards after the second half was over, I watched some bootleg version of it back in college. Um, I loved it, and uh, I, I liked it a lot more than There Will Be Blood, even though they came out the same year. They're both kind of Westerns. They're both shooting like in the same town from one another, I think, or very close by. It's a film where the, the ending is almost like anticlimactic in a way, and yet that's what ends up feeling so um, kind of miserable and brutal and terrible is that yeah, it's mystical. someone just like kills Josh Brolin in, in that hotel we have no idea who they were we just kind of see their car fly off um i thought that ending was really bold in that whole movie um what a what a rock star time but the other film is the limey the uh the soderbergh movie from 1999 all right well at least we can blame the we can blame the fire alarm at least for the first example yep yeah can i ask the next one? Oh, what do you think yeah go ahead matt is that is that a shirt for Matthew? Oh yeah. All right. That's the question we ask every we ask every guest. <laughs> yeah, and you're the first one to give that answer, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So, weird. I don't know. I, I won't ask anymore. No, if you hey, if you think of another another gold one like that, please go go for it. That's all I need. But to uh. All right. Next up, then, what is your most unpopular opinion about a film? Um, I really dislike Booksmart. 
I remember two people walked out of the screening I was at when I saw it. And uh, I was like, you guys are onto something. There was, there was like one sequence in the film that was especially brutal. Um, it just felt like a movie that was asking for likes or like sticker points and bonus points for doing all these things in it. And it didn't have any like originality or until maybe the last like five minutes, there were a couple of scenes that were good, but it just like, wasn't funny. Um, and there's a great critique of this film by Melissa Anderson in four columns. Um, she did an amazing takedown where she kind of talked about how, you know, the, the teenage movie is supposed to have people with like struggles or some kind of goals they're achieving to, or some kind of problems like fast times or Richmond high. Um, Maybe not super bad, but at least super bad's really funny. But uh, the f- characters are complicated, and book smart. It just felt like you know there were two girls who were too smart. They're getting into like Ivy League schools. They didn't party enough during uh, during high school. That was their one um, setback. But uh, yeah, I just really dislike this movie. And uh, somehow, don't worry, darling, was a little bit better actually, even though it, it also stunk to me. Um, but uh, yeah, not. A fan of Olivia Wilde's directing. All right, yeah, I skipped that one, and uh, that you're not convincing me to change my mind. You didn't see that, did you, Seth? No, I watch a lot of new movies. All right, good. Then we don't have to worry about catching up with that. All right, and then what is your personal most unwatchable movie? Which I mean, could just be something you hate, but also if there's something that actually is like painful for you to watch. Or maybe uh, in a, a way that gets into your psyche. Or however you want to answer it. Yeah, I, I feel like American History X is this film for mm-hmm. me. Um, <clears throat> like I should say Hostel or something where there's actual like torture the, the entire movie. But uh, the curb stomp, the image of that. And we don't see it. But again, it's the thought. It's the imagination. It's the fact that that moment exists. That it happened. Um, that has like a visceral bodily reaction in me. You know, that film has a lot of controversial and uh, problematic things, but that kind of small moment in the movie or big moment, but small scene where they don't really show that much. Um, But again, it's the unknowing, right? It's like the monster in Jaws that Spielberg doesn't show until 45 minutes in. That's almost scarier than the crazy things we do see in Eli Roth movies. Glad we could make you think about that again. That Zoller would have shown us the curb stomp. I definitely think so. Yeah, maybe a few. All right, and our last and most contentious question, and I'm keeping a tally of, is Southland Tales good or bad? Disclaimer, never seen it. Never seen Southland Tales. Um, All right, you're our second person in a row who hasn't seen it, but I'm not going to change the movie for this question. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I like one silly over the top absurd movie and Mark's got a Mark's got rubbing my face. One. One. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Just one. No, I like a lot of them. No, it's really it is really wild. It's a really wild movie. But I Well, I, feel I free to email us if you ever catch up with it and we'll add you to the official tally one way or the other. I will for sure. See whose team you're on. Yeah. Are you on Mark's team or my team? If you can even finish that movie. But (laughs) Matt, thank you so much for this, for giving me an excuse to revisit and appreciate these movies again um, and to traumatize Seth. It was basically a win-win for me. And uh, is there anything that you would like to draw anybody's attention to in particular that you have coming up Um, or maybe just the movies that 
you've been working on. The floor is yours. Uh, it'd be cool if there are some board directors out there um, who need financing and need a helping hand. I'm all in. I'd, I'd, I'd be more than willing to get involved and raise money. That would be cool. Um, but uh, Are you listening, Zoller? <laughs> Where are you? I'll email this to him. <laughs> uh, otherwise, hopefully I'll have some article out this year about some movie in 99 because I'm obsessed with that year. And the films that came out, I really want to write about Office Space or Fight Club. So I think those two are like similar in a lot of regards um, and their commentary on like what was happening in the zeitgeist at that time, like corporate America and its commentary. Escape the cubicle. That's right. <laughs> Michael Bolton. Yeah, I'd be so interested in that. Oh, man. I love I love that world. Yeah. The 99s. Yeah. It, it's such a great year. Um, and uh, so that's what I'm looking forward to. Hopefully this year someone accepts my pitch. Um, or something. All right. Well, uh, everybody, for cannibals and head stomping and crooked cops, uh, you might end up in a, a solid movie. Go to normal jail. Yes. But not super jail if you can. Prison reform is really what this is about. Searching for a reason. Unwatchables is produced by Tony Scarpitti, hosted by me, Mark Dottavio, and Seth Troyer, with artwork by Micah Kraus. You can find Seth and I on Letterboxd under Mark Dottavio and Sloth Troyer. You can also check us out at unwatchablespod.com for links to our Twitter and Instagram, or support us on Patreon for bonus content and to have a say in what we watch. Thanks for listening. Can't someone tell me the reason? If it stops, I'm If it stops, I'm If it stops, I'm having a bad dream